What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful businesses. Today, I am excited to be talking to the one and only Rob Walling. I think the best way to describe Rob is that he's really the entrepreneur's entrepreneur. He's bought companies and grown them. He started companies from scratch. He has bootstrapped companies from nothing to profitability and millions of dollars in revenue. Somehow during all this, he found the time to write Start Small, Stay Small, which is the book for developers looking to create their own profitable internet businesses. He's the co-host of the podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us, which if you haven't listened to, I highly recommend. He co-created MicroConf, the world's biggest conference for self-funded software companies, which I was lucky enough to speak at this past year. And today he's working on a new project that a lot of people are talking about called Tiny Seed, the first startup accelerator designed for bootstrappers. So Rob, welcome to the Indie Actors Podcast. You are just everywhere, man, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. It's my pleasure. That was a heck of an intro. You nailed it. Well, you've done a heck of a lot of things. <laughs> it's been a long list. I mean, I think that starts implying at a certain point that you're just you're just getting old. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was tempted instead of doing that whole intro to just introduce you as the grandfather of bootstrapping, but I didn't I want to date you. Appreciate that, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been doing this for a while. I, you know, I started trying to launch stuff around well, almost eighteen years ago, and. I really had my first success maybe 13 years ago. So if that gives people an idea of time frame. Yeah, what made you first decide to become an entrepreneur? Take us back 18 years ago. Well, yeah, I mean, so I graduated from college uh, about 20 years ago in 98. And I really didn't want to work for other people. I wanted the freedom to be able to make things. And, you know, when I was a kid, let's say eight years old, I learned to program on my little Apple IIe that my parents got me. And I loved the freedom and the the power. It felt I was eight. I felt godlike power to be able to write a text based game with code that actually worked and that people could play. And ever since then, that's kind of all I wanted to do was make stuff. And I wrote booklets. I wrote non uh, nonfiction booklets in high school, and I sold them through classified ads, just because I wanted to create something and have it justify my time. You know, with with a little bit of income. And so when I graduated from from college, I realized uh, I, I worked construction for a couple of years, which was hard, but a good learning experience to know what hard work is really like to be out in the field. And then I, I started programming professionally, took a, a salary job and then contracting. And I realized it was super fun and I was creative for a while, but then building things for other people got old for me. And so I, re, I started looking around and like, what can I do that would allow me to have total control of my time? And I was, I was thinking like, should I write a book that, you know, can sell a bazillion copies? Like, could, should I buy real estate and create passive income? Should I, I mean, I, I literally was just looking for ways to own my own time. And after a couple of years of flailing around a little bit, including, I mean, I owned several properties in, in LA at the time, and I was trying to turn that into a passive income stream. And that's a, that's a heck of a lot of work. I mean, talk about yeah, it's a lot of work to get that that going. I finally realized I have this skill that so few other people have. Why don't I double down on that? And that was, you know, basically, right. It was writing code at the time, but then I, you know, slowly learned to market and such over the years. And that that was really the goal was to own to just not have to work for other people and to do what I, you know, create what I wanted to create when I wanted to do it. So your goal here was to really just find freedom to live your life the way that you wanted. Did you know what you would do once you found that freedom? I didn't. I figured that I would just create more things. And what the the nice part of that is I didn't know what would happen, but at that time I didn't have kids. You know, I now have three kids. Once I had one child, I realized, oh, I would totally hang out with my kid more if I wasn't doing this commute in Los Angeles, if I wasn't, you know, working this 40, 50 hour weeks for this, uh, you know, coding for a credit card company. And that is what I realized would probably fill in some of the time. And then I would just work less. I would read more. I would write. I mean, I started blogging in 2005 and I was publishing two big long blog posts a week. But I was doing that. It was like literally nights, weekends. I also used to go out into my car. I mean, this is what a loser I am. Like I used to go into my car at lunch when everyone else was eating and I would scarf down my lunch and I would try to hammer out a blog post Wow. Uh, or, or an essay. Yeah, I was that... 
I was that determined to make this work, you know, and I didn't know what the blog would get me in the end, but looking back, it it was the seed that then became the podcast and microconf and all these other things. So yeah, to answer your question, I didn't know what I would do at the time, but I I knew that I had plenty of things that I could do with the time, you know. People have a lot of trouble managing this transition between working a full-time job and eventually working full-time at their own company. And I think for many people, it can take years to make that switch. And a lot of people never successfully do it. How did you manage to juggle those two facets of your life? I think anyone who is able to do this really quickly and easily, I think they either got lucky or they um, are a much smarter person than I am. Because for me, I dabbled in it from... 2000 to 2005, where I would launch these little efforts and they would get a little traction and make a hundred bucks a month. And then it was so much work and I just knew it wasn't going to grow. I couldn't get things, you know, spend six months of my nights and weekends and nothing would happen. It wasn't until 2005 that I had this first kind of breakthrough. I figured out how to, I had a business, a software business that made, wound up making about two or $3,000 a month, which, you know, was a house payment plus a car payment. I mean, it was, it was pretty cool. Nothing compared to what I made as a programmer in LA, but it was nice. And then it took me until, I believe it was December of 2008. So that's really four years, five, six. Yeah, that's four years it took me. And I made the transition slowly. And I did it by building small utilities and tools or by acquiring them. And that was an interesting realization for me is by that time I started consulting and and contracting and I was billing about 125 an hour, writing code 40 hours a week. But I didn't I didn't want to ever carve out time to sit and spend 100 hours coding a little tool. And so I started noticing that people were selling these little businesses that weren't doing much in terms of making revenue, but that I could apply my tool set that I had learned uh, on this first product. All I learned was a little bit of SEO and a little bit of AdWords. And I just started applying that to the next thing. And then I learned a little bit of... Um, display advertising. And then I learned a little bit of retargeting and a little bit of copyright, you know, and each skill that I learned and put in my tool belt, I could apply to all the products that I was working on at the time. And so I took a little unusual approach to it, honestly, in that I had like almost a portfolio of these little products. And even there was an ebook that I purchased from someone, you know, all the rights to it. And there was an e-commerce site. I mean, it was like six or eight things that all, you know, wound up generating about 10, about 10K, maybe 12K a month, and that was when I was able to really quit, feel okay because I had a wife and a child and a mortgage. I was f- able to feel okay about pulling consulting out altogether, which, as I said, was late 2008, maybe January 2009. That story is fascinating for so many reasons. I think the first thing that sticks out to me is that most developers who I talk to will say, yeah, they really want to start a business and, and you know, achieve some measure of financial freedom. But really what's driving them is they want to code something from scratch on their own. And it takes a tremendous amount of discipline to say, no, I'm going to buy somebody else's business, somebody else's website, and not build it from scratch and just work on that existing thing. What motivated you to take that approach? And how did you even learn that that was possible? It's a really good question. And I've been asked this a lot. I think there were two things that allowed me to do it because I'm as picky about my code as anyone listening to this. I think I'm the best developer and that everyone else's code sucks. And no matter what code, you know, code base I get into, they always did it wrong and I would do it differently. So I totally get that. It's not that I'm not, you know, frankly, as picky as anyone else. But there were two things that allowed my, me and my mindset to do it. One was I really did want the freedom. And at a certain point, I said, what will it take to do that? And is there a way to shortcut this? And so the answer to that was don't build it, buy it. Because as I said, I was making quite a bit of money as a developer, frankly, more money than, I mean, I grew up solidly like working class. Dad was an electrician. My mom was a homemaker. And so we were fine, but we, I didn't have money as a kid. So when I, you know, had $10,000, $15,000 in the bank after coding, you know, for X amount of months, like that was a, I'd never seen that much money. And so you know, to be able to take that and basically skip ahead, you know, instead of saying, I need to launch five things, I'd already launched five things, and none of them had worked. Could I just buy one that is kind of working and make it work more and skip all the trial and error? And that was part of the mindset. The second thing was the, the very first one I bought was called .NET Invoice. And I was a .NET developer at the time, 
and it was still in alpha. It was really early stage. So the code, so I kind of took ownership of the code base and I felt okay that I hadn't built it from scratch. In fact, they'd done a bunch of really good plumbing code that kept me from having to rewrite a login screen and rewrite a forgot your password. You know, they had taken care of all that and they had built a simple invoicing system that I could then build on. And it excited me that I didn't have to, to build all that. And so I wound up you know, I, I approached him and I found, you know, to your point of uh, your question of how did I figure out this was possible? It was pure dumb luck. I was just, it, it was that whole thing. It's that luck surface area, this idea of you do a bunch of things and eventually your, your surface area gets so big that, you know, something hits it. I was on a forum called SitePoint, which later became, well, SitePoint forums, I believe are still around, but that later became Flippa. But I was on SitePoint forums and it was like the marketing and entrepreneurship forum. And there were these two developers that said, we've built this product, but we don't know how to market it. We'd love to partner with someone who knows how to market. And I emailed them and started talking with them. And I was like, you know, I don't really want to partner, but would you just sell the whole thing to me? Because then I can take it and run with it. And they agreed. And they said it was about 400 hours of work, uh, of dev hours. And of course, stupidly, because I had no idea what I was doing, I did the math in my head. And I said, 400 hours times, you know, my my hourly rate is like 50 grand. Maybe it was 40, 40 or 50 grand. I forget what I was billing at the exact moment. But I said, boy, if I can get this thing for like even 10 grand, that's a bargain. This thing's worth a lot, which it wasn't because it wasn't generating any revenue. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not what we know today. You know, this is this is 13 years ago. But actually, to be fair, it was generating about two or three hundred dollars a month. And they had had a month that was 800. And turns out there was a launch they did, you know, it was a little bit. I don't know. It was a little shifty, but I bought it for that, or maybe it may have been 11,000. I think they countered. So I bought the thing and instantly I, you know, the price was 99 bucks. I tripled it to 300 and it didn't, never sold that many copies. You know, it made two grand, three grand a month. So you figure it sells seven or 10 copies, but that, that was game changing for me. And that's when I knew this is, Hey, this is possible. I can actually make money on the internet. And I was coding. I mean, again, I'm coding 40 hours a week at a job. And and then I was coding 20, 30 hours a week, uh, nights and weekends. And I loved it as much as I love hanging out with my wife. When she left town, I would just ratchet that up. So I do, you know, 30, 30 plus hours a week, nights and weekends and uh, make some progress on it. Yeah, it strikes me as when you're talking about this, that the thing that you have the most of when you have a job is money. You're actually getting a salary. It's coming in on a regular basis. The thing you have the least of is time because you're spending 40 hours a week in this job. And what most people do when they're trying to make this transition is find little stretches of time. Like you said, go out to the car and eat your lunch and then find some time to blog, work nights and weekends. But the approach that you ended up taking was to take the thing, the resource you had a lot of, which was money from your job, and use that to save time. So it's really smart that you did it that way. And I even today, don't see very many people buying businesses and building them up. Yeah, it's really good insight. That's a good way to put it. And that, that is exactly how I thought of it too, is I remember at a certain point telling my wife, I, right now I have more money than time for the first time ever in my life. Because all the way through college and you know early, early uh, uh, married life, you're like trying to save for a house and this stuff. But when money started piling up in the bank, it's a good problem to have. But the bad problem that I had is I didn't want to work for anyone else. So how can I take that? You know, I'm not going to save a million bucks or two million and retire right now, but how can I take that and leverage it? And that's that's exactly the calculus uh, I, I did in my head. And I did it multiple times, right? There were multiple things I acquired. Do you have any salient memories of major failures or mistakes or things you did wrong when you were first starting out buying these companies and trying to grow them? I remember the realization after I bought .NET Invoice and gave the guys the money took the code base, got the website, and I emailed their existing customers. And I got, I said, hey, I've acquired this and I'm, you know, it, this is, I, it's a good product, blah, blah, blah. I thought the product was fully baked and it was not. And I got 30, maybe 40 just pissed off replies. People saying, those guys weren't maintaining it. There's like bugs in it. We've reported all these bugs. No one's doing anything. And I thought, holy shit, I just spent $10,000 on a lemon. Like I've, that's more money than I've spent on anything. I had never spent that much on a car. I mean, I was like, this is catastrophic. And one by one, I mean, I, I remember like the hair stands up on the back of your neck. Like you think, I can't believe I've just made like the, the worst mistake of my professional life, you know? Yeah. And I, I was reading through the emails and at a certain point I realized I can fix this. Like I'm a developer. These are bugs. These are pissed off people. I can make them not pissed off. 
And so one by one, I would respond and said, what's your bug? Well, this doesn't do that. And I expect, cool. So I'd go in and I'd spend two hours here and I would fix that thing. And that I spent 60 hours in the first two weeks just triaging, you know, angry customers and people who weren't, who were trying it and they had errors and just fixing little things. The nice part about it though, it was obviously super stressful, but there was an interesting thing where my but the fact that I'd written that that $11,000 check, my back was to the wall. So I couldn't justify walking away from the product. And I feel like sometimes people launch a product, it doesn't get traction, it gets hard, and they kind of walk away from it. This was actually motivation that I had to make it work because I was all in because I had written that check. And what an amazing way to build goodwill with these early customers. I mean, the juxtaposition between these earlier owners who weren't really responsive to customer complaints and feedback, and then you, this new guy who's taking it over, who immediately starts fixing bugs one by one. I mean, I bet you they're pretty happy. Yeah, it it definitely got me some goodwill with them. And then, you know, I was able to get annual upgrades. It was a one-time sale, but I was able to get annual upgrades. And when I increased the price and the annual upgrade price went up, like really didn't get many complaints. So it was definitely, it was a, it was worthwhile not only for that, but really for the the learning experience for me was huge. You know, I had never answered support emails really, right? And so this is coming straight into my Gmail <laughs> and I'm just sitting there one by one answering them and then eventually realizing, oh, this is how you, this is really how you should talk to customers, even when they're angry. It's stuff we all know today, but it's like, there were no, there were no blogs, podcasts talking about this. There was no indie hackers, you know? So I was just kind of making it up as I went along. And so it was just my, holding my feet to the fire was, um, definitely a helpful, helpful learning experience that I took forward with me to every other product I did. You know, that's the thing. It was like, respond, don't panic, get in there, elbow grease, do what it takes to, to get this done. And, you know, and it'll yield some results. So we, it went from making, like I said, two or 300 a month, and it consistently made between two and 3000 a month for years and years until I took on a, uh, just a business partner. Cause I wanted to move on to other stuff. And then eventually I just gave it to him when it became, it was just a small thing at a certain point and it, it wasn't worth you know my attention anymore. So one of the more interesting projects, businesses that you moved on to was a company called Hittail. What's the story there? What's interesting is around 2009, I, when I stopped consulting, I had this period of immense creativity and I acquired Hittail in two years later in 2011. But there was this two year span where I wrote my book, Start Small, Stay Small, that you mentioned. I launched an on what I believe is the first ever online training for um, bootstrap software founders. It was called the Micropreneur Academy. And now it's called Founder Cafe. But it was a membership site with a bunch of content, everything I had learned from you know doing what I'd done. Uh, we launched MicroConf and we launched Startups for the Rest of Us. All four of those things happened within 18 months. And that was, you know, how when you asked earlier, what w- did you know what you were going to do with your time once you had it? I didn't, but that's what I wound up doing was just pouring out information, you know, and, and I blogged more and I, the podcast went weekly and the, you know, the, the conference and everything. And so I did that. Our son was born in 2010, our second son. And I spent about eight months with him. I was working about 10, 15 hours a week and he and I hung out. Uh, we walked around the town with him, you know, he was in a baby Bjorn strapped to my chest and I loved it, man. It was like, I have some of the fondest memories of my life or that stretch of time. And as it eked into 2011, I was getting bored. I was just restless to do the next thing, you know? And I realized that I could build something from scratch and I started entertaining that idea. But I came back to the, what if I could acquire a SaaS app and basically do a Warren Buffett play, buy something that is is valued at less than what I think it's worth, and then just you know, grow it. Cause I have, again, I had all these skills by that time. Um, and I had even an audience and I, I just had so much more, I'd kind of stair-stepped my way up to where I felt confident enough that I could really, you know, do some damage in a good way, like really grow something. Hittail was an app that I found that was neglected and it had been built by a PR firm in, I believe it was 2006. And I found it by going back and Googling. I think your your listeners might dig this, but I went back and Googled like top 10 you know, startup launches or top 100 startups of 2006, top 100 startups to 2007. And I would just go through the list and anything that wasn't like B2B SaaS, I just ditched. But anything that was, I would then go and see, are they still around? 
Do they, you know, are, does it look decrepit and ancient and neglected? Even if it wasn't, I would till, still just say, are people using it? Do I think this is making money? And I would cold email the, you know, the founder or I'd sometimes even just the contact form. And that's how I found it. I sent out, I'm trying to think, probably 50 emails, maybe a, between 50 and 100 and got some responses and, and some not. But Hittail, you know, resulted from, from that. And Hittail is, um, it's still around. I actually sold it in 2015 as drip was really scaling up i just didn't have the time anymore to maintain it but it is a long tail seo keyword tool so at some point during all this you mentioned you decided to sit down and, and write a book before acquiring hitail but after your previous successes the book was called start small stay small and it was a step-by-step guide to teach developers how to launch a self-funded startup what made you decide to write something like that I was blogging since 2005, and so about five years into the blog, and just a few months, I believe, into the podcast, which was we started in 2010, I had this massive list of questions that people would send me about starting up, about because I wrote about the Hittail acquisition in I'm sorry, not the Hittail one. The I wrote about both of them, but the .NET invoice one is called. If you if you Google the inside story of a small software acquisition, I have a three part series where I went into as much detail as I as I could. I'm not sure if I mentioned dollar amounts, but I really went line by line, and I got tons of questions about all of this stuff. I also started using virtual assistants in 2007 when I read the Four Hour Workweek, and I realized I was doing all my own support on all these products. I had no idea this whole world of virtual assistants, you know, remote work existed, and. I was looking at like hiring someone in LA and they were going to charge 40 bucks an hour. And I was thinking to myself, I can't even make this work financially. I can't get these products off the ground. But as soon as I found out about VAs, I had a whole team. I had seven or eight VAs doing all different types of stuff, design work and support and SEO and just helping me. So I would start blogging about that. And so pretty soon I realized, wow, I, ha- I actually do have some knowledge. You know, eventually you, you kind of, I still had imposter syndrome, but I definitely thought I, I know at least more than the person who's starting today. So I took all those questions and I took a bunch of uh, ideas that I hadn't yet blogged about. And I said, I'm just going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to write a book and I'm going to see if this even makes sense. I'm going to self-publish it because that's kind of what we do as bootstrappers, right? I don't want to wait. I actually talked to a couple publishers who had approached me on the blog and they said it took 18 months from the first conversation to the time it was published. And wow. I don't have that attention span. Like I need stuff to happen faster. And that was really the reason I didn't do that. It wasn't even about the money because I didn't think I didn't think I would sell that many copies if I self-published. But it was something that I wanted to build quick and I wanted to ship and I wanted to see what the response was. And so instead of writing an entire book, I put up a landing page, like in true smoke test format, I um, put up a landing page and I still have a screenshot of it somewhere if you want me to send that to you for whatever reason. But the, the headline said, at last, a book built for, oh, what was it? Built for founders who want to build a product without $6 million in venture funding or something like that. It was kind of a snarky headline. And then it had, you know, just a couple bullets of like, this is, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing if you're interested in your email. That was it, which of course went into MailChimp. And so I blogged about it. I put it on Hacker News and it went to the front page and I got around 600 emails uh, that said they were interested. And to me, that was validation. I figured if I could sell even 200 copies at 30 bucks a piece, that'd be six grand and I could justify sitting down you know, and spending a couple months to write the book, which shows you how what I thought my time was worth back then. But <laughs> I, um, so I sat down and wrote it. Took eh, on and off, took two or three months, and I repurposed. Actually, I had some content in the Micropreneur Academy that fit really well that I repurposed, so it wasn't totally writing from scratch. And then, uh, and then I launched it to the list, and I sold three hundred copies in the first uh, month, which netted me about well, netted it was gross about nine grand. And I was like, that was so cool. That's great. I'm so glad I did that. Yeah. And then next month, it sold 300 more copies. And the month after, it sold 400. It was crazy. It, like, people, it resonated with people enough that it just kept going. So it's, it's sold about 11,000 or 12,000 copies now. It's made a, I think I made about a quarter million dollars on it. And it was not the... I mean, you could tell my aspirations were definitely not that, but it was a game changer. When it went on Amazon, it got hooked. You know, It was like part of the recommended books for if you read The Lean Startup for a while. I mean, there were all these serendipitous things that would happen. But again, it's 
you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. I'm not sure if you've heard that, that it's an old quote, but yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's kind of how I feel sometimes. It's funny because your book is still relevant today. There's a a post on the Indie Hackers Forum, I think last week, where somebody was asking about advice from the book and then you ended up jumping in. Would you ever write another book yourself? And related to that, what's your advice for other entrepreneurs who are considering writing a book today? I would write another book myself. Every year I consider it. Typically every December I think, do I want to write another book, you know, a book next year? Or do I want to update? start small, stay small, which is more, <laughs> more likely looking what it's going to be because I just, I get that question a lot and it's fair. Like I feel like 80% of start small, stay small is mindset and high level stuff that is timeless. And then there's 20% of it that's very prescriptive. And that's that stuff went out of date 18 months after it was published. So, but the answer is yes. Uh, I would love to write another book. I enjoy that creative process. If other, are you wondering, are you asking me about if software founders are thinking about writing a book or just someone in general yeah, maybe someone listening to the podcast who's thinking, you know, maybe I want to start a company. Maybe I want to write a book. Um, they're both mm-hmm. totally valid ways of generating income online. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think my advice would be like, I didn't launch it with no audience. Like the reason it worked for me is that I had spent, this was five years after I was, you know, I mean, I had 300 plus essays on my blog when I published the book. I had 25,000 RSS subscribers. I had however many, I didn't have very many email people yet because I was just, maybe six months into building email list, I just discovered them. And so that would honestly, I mean, if you're going to do kind of the info product route or a book route, I lean much more towards either figuring out how to make a publisher work with that or building some kind of audience. So you you just have someone to talk to about it and a built-in sales channel. There are obviously alternatives. I mean, if you're going to write a book about, you know, how to program for kids, you could, if you created some killer visuals and had credibility, you could go to Kickstarter or Indiegogo with that. I don't think that's a bad way to go. I know I back way too many Kickstarters and I would totally back that. Anything that teaches my kids how to do technology or, you know, nerdy stuff like that, I'm I'm all over it. I think that less so if you're going to start a, a software product or a software company, I don't think you need to build an audience. It's good to have one and, and it's always treated me well, but I've seen many, many, many more people build, you know, again, launch products without much of an audience and and still do okay as long as they really serve that need and they do have some type of, of a good marketing channel. So let's fast forward back to Hittail. You've written this book, you've acquired a ton of experience, you've written tons of blog posts, built an audience. What is some of the advice that you gave in the book, Start Small, Stay Small, that you found yourself taking yourself when you were working on Hittail? Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. I um one of the things I did really early on is I went through and did a complete kind of rehab. You know, where they buy the the houses and they and they rehab them and flip them. Yeah, I bought it and rehabbed it and didn't flip it. You know, I well, I guess I sold it like four or five years later. But I went through a complete like conversion and funnel analysis of like this first page doesn't get people to the next page, doesn't get people to sign up. The sign up flow is too cumbersome. There was just all this stuff of just CRO, it's called, right? Conversion rate optimization. And that I talk about, I didn't call it CRO in the book because I had never heard that term, but I talk about how to get people to to the net, you know, to your call to action and to have calls to action. I also applied SEO stuff I talked about in there, the keyword research in terms of had all these incoming links. So a PR firm had built it. And it had these amazing links from like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Inc. Magazine. I don't know, all these places that I would have a tough time getting links to, from, high authority, but it, no one had ever done any SEO on it. And so just looking at title tags and re- restructuring the site and doing that made it start rising rising in the ranks. And then um, even pricing, right? The pricing was all wonk. It was way out of whack. It was like 10 bucks a month. And then there was some huge plan that, yeah, that was only a couple people were on and it was $100 a month. And that was it. There were no plans in between those. And so instantly you know, change that, right? To have pricing based on the value people were getting, not just kind of some random, you know, no one had ever tested pricing. So I took a ton of stuff. Oh, and and even using virtual assistants, right? I mean, I got in there for about a month. I did support for a month or two on Hittail as I started growing it, trying to figure out what the questions were coming in. And then I had one of my virtual assistants handle support to free me up time to, you know, to get her done. So... One of my big heroes is Ben Franklin, and he has this quote. I think I've talked about it on the podcast before. It's, experience keeps a dear school, but a fool will learn and no other. And what he means by that is that while, yes, it's great to learn from making your own mistakes because those learnings will stick with you, 
it's better to learn from other people's mistakes because then you don't have to make those mistakes yourself. It's better to read, start small, stay small, and sort of learn vicariously through Rob Walling than it is to spend 10 years making all those same mistakes. Rob, what are some of the mistakes that you have made and learned from versus things you've learned from other people? I mean, that list is endless, but I I think most things that I learned, it was from one or the other, right? It's like I learned SEO, which became a, it's, it's a lot harder to do today, but there was just more opportunity, you know, 2005 to 2012 or whatever. I learned that by both. Like I learned it by being in the Moz forums and um, there was seobook.com, Aaron Wall. So he would be like an SEO mentor of me and Rand Fishkin would be an SEO mentor, even though they, you know, I, I know Rand today, but I didn't know him, you know, back then. But I would take tidbits, then it would be experience because I, I had to prove that it worked and B, I wanted to kind of, you know, I had to get the experience of doing it. So there was a lot of stuff like that that I think, you know, that I took from from both sides. I'm trying to think of a mistake that I made. I mean, the the mistake I made buying .NET Invoice for more than it was worth, that wasn't great. And I later learned, you know, later learned what how to, how to value software products. But I don't know that I, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Because see, I, I definitely have like people I respect a lot in the startup space. I mean, there's like Jason Cohen. Like I, I had to have learned loads from that guy because he's just so smart. And every time he talks, I feel like I walk away with something that's going to help keep me from making a mistake. I feel Dharmesh Shah similar, <laughs> you know, just like yeah. he's like a, a godfather of SaaS in my opinion. And those guys, I mean, Dharmesh talked about churn because as I was, I was doing Hit Tail, it was like the second SaaS that I'd done, but this was the first that it was at this scale. And I took a bunch of stuff from a talk that Dharmesh did at Business of Software about churn and about thinking about it and trying to predict it. And I implemented that. So I don't know that it kept me from making mistakes, but it certainly helped me helped me grow, you know, hit tail to, to what it was. You end up accumulating all this knowledge over the years and you end up with this curse of knowledge situation where you kind of forget what you used to not know. It all sort of just meshes together and you suddenly know all these things and it's hard to track exactly where you learned something or when you learned something. That's absolutely true. Yep. So while you're working on Hittail, you eventually started another business called Drip, which ended up being, I think, financially your biggest, most successful business that you started in your entire career. Where did the idea for Drip come from, and why did you decide to start another company while you were running Hittail? Yeah, well, that latter <laughs> the latter question of why to do both is a good one, because I would not recommend that to most people. I To that point, I had kind of started something or, or acquired it, then I built it up and then I put it on autopilot and then I moved on to the next thing. And that that works with really small things and really small niches where they, you know, you can just kind of own these SEO keyword tools and Google wasn't changing very frequently back then. But it gets harder when you have something larger like a hit tail, which was doing mid, let's say mid six figures is, is probably a good good way to put it. And well there were a couple of things. One Google started doing Panda and Penguin, and that's when they, those were updates to their SEO algorithms. And then they did they switched to not provided. I don't know if you remember this, but you used to be able to go into the Google Webmaster Tools and you saw all the keywords that people were finding your website for. And then you would see which ones were converting for you. It was this amazing knowledge that was so helpful. And so then you could double down on trying to either buy ads or do SEO for those keywords. And when they, they turned to this not provided thing, all those became, they did stop providing them. And it kind of decimated Hittail temporarily until I rewrote this big piece of it to scrape this other thing. And I rescued it from the ashes, but it was my biggest income source at the time. I mean, it was me and a couple contractors working on that. And I kind of looked around and said to myself, like, how long is this going to last? Is this a decade or two decade business? Or is Google going to crush it accidentally at some point? And I'm going to have nothing else to go to. So that was that was one part of it. I also didn't love it, it was $10 a month starting it was 10 20 40 80 were the were the um, price plans. And you know, $10 a month apps are they have high churn. And eventually they get hard to grow, you just have to have a really wide funnel. And certainly it was making good money. But I also wanted to do, uh, what's it like to run a seven-figure business, you know? I mean, there was that that whole thought process. So now the good news about Hittail, though, I, I sold it, and it's still going strong. So Google has not decimated it. In fact, they released an API that made Hittail way more stable. So it may, very well could be a decade or two, a decade app at this point. But um, 
yeah, so that that led into me thinking, is there something else out there that is a higher price point, you know, hopefully has lower churn, isn't built on someone else's platform. You know, I didn't really want Google or Twitter or Facebook to be able to crush it. And, you know, that, that would be another SaaS app. And so thought about acquiring another one and eventually just decided let's let's build something. And so it, the the drip started off, you know, eventually became an email service provider that competes with the likes of let's say MailChimp or, or AWeber. And then it eventually became a marketing automation provider with a bunch of automations. But when it first started, all it was it was a little email capture widget, little JavaScript widget, and then it was autoresponders. And this was at a time where there it was before SumoMe or Optin Monster or you know, whoever else you think of when you think of kind of the the JavaScript pop-ups that capture email. And so we needed that on Hittail. And I had a contractor named Derek who I hired to build that out. And it took him a week. And he, he used a bunch of jQuery and hacked a bunch of stuff together. And then he wired it into MailChimp. And I was like, this took way, way too long. Like, that is not a hard thing to do. Why why isn't this productized somewhere? And so that's, that's where the idea came from. It strikes me that uh, this this experience you had of building Hittail on top of another product, Google, and then having the sort of deer-in-the-headlights moment where you think your entire company might crumble because Google made you know, some small change is a great example of something that you learned through your own experience. Because I'm sure people have read about this, the risk of building on someone else's platform. But you, know, you go into the next business, and that's one of the th- items on your checklist. Don't build something that's completely dependent on someone else's business. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I've watched you give a talk uh, it was years and years ago when you touched on this topic of solving your own problem. And it's the oldest advice out there, that if you want to build a company, you should solve a problem that you yourself have so you know what it's like to be in your customer's shoes. The problem is that that's not enough. That doesn't always work by itself. You need to validate your idea as well. How did you validate your idea for Drip besides knowing that it's a product that you yourself needed for Hittail? I'm glad you pointed out that that doesn't always work because it doesn't. Scratching your own itch only works if a bunch of other people have the same itch, right? And so. I knew that by this point, I was, I was far enough in. It was probably November, October, November of 2012. And I realized we'd built this thing. And I talked to Derek, again, this con- contract developer, and said, hey, what do you think? You think we could turn this into a little SaaS app? He knew Ruby. And he was like, yeah, that would be interesting. And I said, all right, here's what we're going to do. Don't write a line of code. I'm going to talk to people that I know, specifically within SaaS, just because that's I knew founders from there. And um, and it was working on Hittail, so that was kind of where I was going to start with it. I always knew or, fig- or figured it would you know move out into other you know bloggers, information products, or whatever, which it did, but kind of went there. So I had a conversation with 17 different founders that I knew, and I just emailed them and said, here's what I've built. It's going to do this. What do you think? You know, if, if we built this thing, well, I built it once here on Hittail, but if I made this a service, a SaaS app, would you pay 99 bucks a month for it? And here's the value it would provide. And I got 10 or 11 to say, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. It seems like it's providing enough value. Because on Hittail, we were getting a bunch of traffic, but anyone who didn't sign up for trial, they were just bailing. We had no, they had no email list. So once we uh, added this widget to it, we were collecting, I forget what the number was. It was like a thousand emails a month or something. It was a huge amount. Well, huge, relative, right? We have going from zero to 6,000 in six months. It was pretty nice. And it upped our, our visitor to trial conversion rate went up 33% uh, once we implemented this. So to me, I was like, these results are insane. You know, again, insane is all relative, but it was, it was pretty nice. It was a lot more money to the bottom line for, for no ongoing work. And so... Um, yeah, so I got the kind of the buy-in or the just you know verbals that that folks would be willing to to try it out and felt like it provided that value. And so then in December of 2012, um, Derek broke ground with with code on it. And essentially at that point, you know, I, I in my head I had $1,100 of you know $1,100 of MRR in pre-sales. Although in the end, by the time we built it, I had done a bunch of more research talking to people, and I lowered the price to $49 as the starter. And then, you know, there were, I don't know, of the 11, I think about six or seven wound up actually purchasing it. So the numbers didn't work out, ex- you know, exactly as I would expect it, but it certainly was a good exercise for me to have the conversations. And to, to even circle back on that, I don't think any of those were actual, like, telephone or, or video conversations. I believe they were all via email, which kind of shows you, you know, there are just different ways, different ways to do it. I remember you showing the email off during your talk at a microconf, and it was this gigantic email you sent to people. that was paragraph after paragraph explaining <laughs> what you're working on, and somehow they read through this thing and helped you out. 
And I, I, I wonder later. <laughs> I shortened that later. It was pretty gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's cool because, you know, by this point, you've already built a huge audience for yourself through blogging, through microconf, through your book. And I wonder how advantageous it was for you to take advantage of your network. Like, how do you take advantage of your network and how did that help you build Trip? Yeah. That was, in all honesty, it was the first time I had, ta- I had <laughs> utilized my network in the entire time I was doing anything. I had never, I had utilized my audience, right? I, I had, because I had a blog audience that then I would mention Hittail to or the podcast, I would mention Hittail and that got a few customers. It didn't really make that big of a difference. But I had never gone to my network and had not, I was never thinking about it like that. I think as, a, as an introverted developer, yeah, I know people, right? I run a conference. I invite really fancy speakers like Jason Cohen and Heaton Shaw and all these people to come speak, but I don't really have a network. I mean, I literally, this was my mindset. And so, to reach out to folks who would respond to my email, you know, to, to Ruben from BidSketch, Ruben Gomez, to Wade Foster from Zapier, to Jeff uh, Epstein from Ambassador. I mean, these were literally three people that I emailed as part of that drip thing. And of course, they're going to respond to my email because they know who I am, you know, and there was, there was an advantage. There was a unique advantage I had at that point, because if I was cold emailing those folks, it would have been a much different story. So I was, that was the first time I kind of reaped, you know, what, what I had been sowing in terms of, of, you know, becoming more prominent, having a personal brand. And that's where I'll get the question sometimes, like, is it worth building a personal brand? And it's like, well, it depends, you know, are you doing it for the audience? Are you doing it for the network? Are you doing it for both? What are you going to launch? What do you, you know, you got to think longer term about it. But yes, at that one moment, it was key that I had that personal brand. And with Tiny Seed, you know, I know we'll probably talk about it later, but that's been a big thing as well. I think if I wasn't who I am and people didn't know me, I would definitely have a much harder time getting that off the ground as well. I want to dial things back a little bit. At this point, you have worked on like, I don't know, 10, 15 businesses. And I know in the short term, your goal is to grow this pre-sale revenue you're collecting but what were your long-term goals like at this point? And how were those shaped by the fact that you'd found so much success with your previous businesses? Yeah, my goals were bigger than each business. I wanted to basically make it, you know, 5X bigger, 10X bigger than the previous one. And I'm not sure that was necessarily healthy nor helpful, but I definitely wanted this to be uh, at least a seven-figure business. And I wanted, um, I I didn't want to do the same thing again, you know, growing another SaaS business to, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 K a month. It, as weird as this sounds for it to come out of my mouth, just sounded boring, you know? And that's the thing. I mean, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have said that, you know, that was a, that was a goal of like, oh my God, are you kidding me? I can, I can own or run or operate a SaaS business. It's doing that and see what it's like on the inside and be part of it and all that. But I was just kind of done and needed that next challenge. I mean, I think that's kind of the curse of, of well, one of the blessings and the curse of being a founder who wants to continue, you know, innovating is that novelty is part of what keeps us keeps us interested. And so the create the creativity and the the creation of that next business is something that that I wanted out of uh, out of Drip. How did these loftier ambitions affect your decision making? I mean, what did you do differently? to ensure that Drip wouldn't be something that stagnates at 40, 50K a year, but could get to, you know, 10 times that. Yeah. Well, the price point was one. The early marketing was another. You know, we we took six months before we got to kind of an alpha. And all during that time, I started talking about Drip and building an email list. And then we did a slow launch from about, I'd say it was July or August until November where I would email groups because it was 3,400 people on this list. I didn't want to just email 3,400 people and say, come in the doors. Because I mean, A, you're just going to bleed people out because you don't have the right features. Uh, you can't support all that many people trialing. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a problem with doing that. So I started emailing them in 300-person groups, I believe. And so every week or two, we'd email another 300 and that lasted through November. And that was when we officially opened the doors and people could could get in. But I spent you know, a lot of that time being very cautious and careful about, I want to retain as many people as possible and uh, really want to build it as something that can, like you said, you know, can, can 10X from here. So I want to make sure that all the marketing I do is worthwhile. I also ran ads to build the email list, which is something I had never done. I'd run ads before, but never to build an email list. And that was a thing where I wanted to get off to a really good start at the beginning so that I could ramp this thing up pretty fast. And frankly, I mean, when we launched, 
by the time we hit the end of November, December, we were at about, I think it was 8K, it was 7 or 8K MRR. And I thought that was a pretty good, pretty good start. But I wanted to to take it up. And I, you know, I thought it had a lot of potential to, to do something beyond that. I know the story of Rip. And I know that once you hit that point where you're doing about $8,000 and monthly recurring revenue, things sort of stagnated there and you, you found it hard to grow. Why was that? Because we didn't have product market fit. We just, we hadn't built something that was, that people really, really wanted. And although there were users using it, I was driving trials because by this time I had the marketing engine going. Trials would come in and they would stay for a month or two and then they'd churn out. And some of the biggest reasons were, well, I can kind of cobble this together with MailChimp plus some JavaScript. Or you've built something, but it's it's feels like it's too expensive, you know, 49 bucks. Too expensive for what it does. A lot of feedback like that. And that was a big takeaway for me to, to make a decision. Because one way you could look at the too expensive comment is to lower your pricing. But the way that I looked at it is, I call it aspirational pricing, which is, I aspire to build an app that the minimum price point is 49 bucks. So what would I need to build to make it worth that? And I started asking that of people who canceled. And it's kind of flips the question on its head, you know? And rather than why did you cancel? It would be like, why did you cancel? Oh, because it's too expensive? What would it need to do that? And some people started saying, well, you know, I already use MailChimp. So if you built broadcasts uh, and a couple other things, but then... You know, MailChimp's cheaper, right? It's 15 bucks or whatever. It's free and then has a, a low plan. They said, but then there's this automation thing that's coming around where you can like, you know, Infusionsoft does this and a couple other tools where you can like click on a link in an email and it'll like do things. You know, it'll move someone from one campaign to another. I mean, it was just basic email automation. And I was like, what? I've never even heard of this. This is crazy. It's the end of 2013. And I re- I'd never heard marketing automation or any of that stuff. And so that's when I realized that there was kind of this movement in advanced, more advanced marketers away from these standard ESPs. You know, MailChimp and Aweber are obviously still wildly successful businesses and I have respect for them. But there was this movement towards having a more automated approach where you can do things in emails. And so we, we started looking at that and I realized this might be an avenue might be a path to get us to some kind of product market fit where not only have we built something people want, but no one else has built this yet at this price point in in a package that's this easy to use because it existed, but it was all upmarket, right? It was Infusionsoft, HubSpot, Marketo, Eloqua, Pardot, and even Entreport. And those are, if you've never heard of those tools, don't worry. I mean, they, those are start at 300 a month and they go up to, you know, five grand a month or they go up to way more than that. But I mean, like starting price is like 300 to a few grand. And so to build it in a $49 package, a stripped down version of it, it was a light version, but it was built with modern software UX and sensibilities. And it was easy to onboard. It was self-service. You know, it was all the things that we like as as founders, you know, and kind of SaaS founders. That was the path that, that we eventually chose to go down. A lot of people start companies and run into some sort of wall where it's hard to grow. They stagnate and they really just haven't reached product market fit. Uh, by this point in your career, you had started tons of companies. Did you have like sort of a playbook for how to get beyond this point? How did you know that talking to customers and, and doing the research that you did would lead you to sort of the promised land? Oh my gosh, it was agonizing, man. It was six months of like, I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would hear my inner voice say, you, you should know how to do this. I would literally hear like, how is it that, like, you've written a book on stuff, like, you should know how to do this. Talk about imposter syndrome creeping up, you know? It's like, we're not growing, and what are we going to do to fix it? So, no, I, I mean, I had kind of a playbook. I knew that I had to find something. I knew we weren't working. I knew we weren't going to grow. And I was just looking for how to either pivot or, you know, add the features. I don't know that it was exactly a pivot as much as it was just a maturing of the product that we did. I didn't really use... I mean, I, I knew of customer development from Steve Blank and Lean Startup was com- coming around at that point, but that wouldn't have helped me as much as I think just customer development was the, the big conversation in my head that I was thinking about, right? It's like, have your customers tell you stuff. I mean, there's also danger in that because there were a bunch of customers that were telling us to do stuff that was that were bad ideas. And so I had to filter those out. And that, that's where the, there's no playbook but there are some guidelines, you know, it's like, we got all these requests and I could have followed one. We got, we would get requests, Hey, build landing pages into drip. Hey, build uh, e-commerce, build a shopping cart into drip, build, you know, affiliate management, I mean, just all this stuff. 
we could have gone down that road, but it just didn't, it didn't feel right to me, you know, with the vision of the product. So I think that's where, that's where a founder has to kind of go with their gut and, and, you know, build something that they, they think that people will want and then validate it along the way. I mean, we didn't just, it took us, let's say five months to build all the automation, but we like in two months in, we dropped the first one, you know, and then we dropped another one every two weeks. And and as, as that happened, like churn went down, trials went up, all the, all the metrics went and started going in the right direction. And I realized we're onto something. Let's keep, keep doing this. It's a lot of pressure, Rob, to not only have a company that's not working as it should, but to feel like you should know how to do this because you're, you're the guy, you wrote the book. Like, how could you possibly not know? Yeah. It wasn't fun times for sure. <laughs> yeah. So you're, uh, I think with this episode, part of the first husband and wife team to come on to the Indie Hackers podcast because your wife, Dr. Sherry Walling, came on to the show earlier this year. And we talked a lot about founder psychology and trauma and getting through what you're talking about right now, getting through the dark times. Were there any other dark times that you had to go through? And what's your take on how to push through those as a founder? Yeah, there were other dark times. I mean, I, I started, I, there was a period where I burned out on Drip where I was trying to grow it and I was just doing too much. I was making the founder mistake of I can handle everything. I'll handle all the fires and all the hard decisions. That was in 2015. I had some burnout. I was that was tough. Kind of in burnout. In me, burnout looks like depression a little bit, where I just lose motivation and stuff. And then, frankly, the acquisition. I mean, I don't want to steal your your punchline if we're leading to there, but you know, I, ultimately, as I, we were acquired by Lead Pages, and that acquisition was super stressful for me. It was like for four months, maybe five months of just really tough times. And I think, I mean, advice is tough to give in these spots, but I've definitely learned to like hold things looser and be less concerned about all the details and not to try to keep it to myself. I was, I wasn't talking to Sherry about nearly enough of these things as I should have, which is funny considering she's a psychologist. (laughs) Like this is her job. I mean, she could have helped me, but for some reason I bottled a bunch of it up and I stressed more about things. I stressed about things a lot more than they needed to be in all honesty. Now that I'm going through this again, you know, starting this new thing, we're going through some of the same things that stressed me out last time, just the startup phase of, of it's just, there's chaos and, and all this stuff in a new entity. But I'm like, yeah, this isn't nearly as stressful as last time. And I, I don't think it's because I've done it before. I actually think it's because I'm just having that mindset of like, this is all going to work out. I think that's a big thing is to believe, like not be stupid, to believe everything will always work out, but to know that like, just because you had a hard conversation with a customer or with an employee or with a, a prospect today, like it doesn't mean that the whole business isn't worthwhile, which is sometimes the narrative that I, I do and, and other founders, you know, tell themselves, I think. And it's like, to do, do less of that and figure out how to, how to just look long-term and be like, in a year, this will all be figured out and it's going to work. How do we get from here to there rather than worrying about the things that are happening today? Sage advice, but easier said than done as well. Indeed. So you, we could probably talk about Drip for hours, but you've talked about Drip on many different podcasts, many different talks you've given. So people who are interested in sort of how you navigated Drip into the major company and success that it became, I encourage you guys to go look at some of Rob's other stuff online. But the ultimate end of the story, which you gave away, is that Drip was acquired by Lead Pages for an undisclosed sum. And I think it's safe to say that you're one of the few people that I've had on the show where you would never have to work again if you didn't want to. And yet here you are today starting a new company called Tiny Seed. So what's keeping you going? Uh, what is Tiny Seed and why are you excited to be working on it? Yeah, it, it's funny. I took, um, you know, after the acquisition, I worked for, for Lead Pages of the Acquirer for about 18 or 20 months. And then I took about three months off, well, four months off. And during that time, there was an idea that had been percolating with me. I mean, frankly, I look back in a notebook from like 2011, 2012, and I had written this idea and it said, why see for bootstrappers. And what I meant by that is, why isn't there an accelerator like Y Combinator for people who would otherwise bootstrap their company, who aren't, who, where the end goal is not demo day series A, it's here's enough funding to like get to the point where you're sustainable, you know, and then you can raise a round if you want to, but maybe you don't want to, maybe you want to live off dividends, maybe you want to sell it eventually. I mean, there's all these options, but let's, let's preserve optionality without having to, to have unicorns, right? To have these billion dollar companies because people, you know, what I do now or what I've done and, and people who I hang around with, they're starting SaaS companies, typically B2B that, you know, get to say one to 20, 30 million in revenue. 
And they're super fun. They're lucrative. It's a real viable market, but you can't raise funding or it's very, very hard to raise funding. You know, you can't raise traditional venture funding to do a business that's that quote unquote small, but it doesn't feel small to me. So that's, that was the idea when I wrote it down. And as I did my microconf talk in April, uh, someone approached me It turned, you know, wound up being my, my co-founder with Tiny Seed. And I had known him for several microconfs and he does some stuff in the finance space. And one of the reasons I didn't do the YC for bootstrappers back in 2011, 2012 is I didn't really think I had the network and I didn't want to deal with the legal and the fundraising and all the stuff that it takes to do that, right? Because to do an accelerator, you have to raise a small fund to then, you know, hand out money to the people and run it. And there's, there's just a bunch of stuff to do. And none of that, that part didn't sound like fun, but all the other stuff did. So when he approached me, his name's, his name's Einar Volset. He said, hey, I really you know, like that idea you talked about of, of these small, smaller companies raising smaller rounds, but not from institutions. Like, you know, you should raise a fund and I could help you do that. And I was like, that's really interesting because I know this guy's smart and connected and, you know, kind of trust his judgment. And he said, yeah, we should do an accelerator. And so we started noodling on that. And that, you know, became what Tiny Seed is today. It's basically the first uh, startup accelerator designed for folks who would otherwise bootstrap. But the goal is obviously not the Series A. It's to get to a point of of sustainability, you know. And whether sustainability means, hey, I decided that we are going to get bigger and, and raise another round, the options there. Or it's, hey, I just want to build a little one, five million, $10 million business and pull dividends out, you know, and, and, and the investors being tiny seed would then get some and the, you know, founders get get others. That would be the the goal. So yeah, we announced a couple months ago and have been, you know, working hard on it. And I think the other thing I mean, I'll throw out about a differentiator is a lot of my folks, like my microconf people and a lot of the founders that I speak with, they can't move or, you know, aren't able to move to... San Francisco or Boston or another location for three months and kind of hammer away on things. They have maybe a family or a kid or just, you know, they're in a situation there where they, where they can't move. So ours is, you know, one of the few virtual remote accelerators uh, and it's a year long, which is the, the, the idea of the year being it, is uh, it takes a long time to grow SaaS apps. You know, it's not the traditional, the venture-funded model is let's throw a bunch of money at it and try to compress time, right? Like try to make the time shorter so that you grow super fast. And with Facebook and Instagram and even maybe Google and Twitter, like that works. But none of those are subscription SaaS apps and SaaS apps take forever. Like almost no matter what you do, it's going to take a long time. At a certain point, you can add stuff and it goes faster and such. But especially in these early days, like an accelerator would be time, in my opinion, is even more important, you know, than money. And so that's, that's why we're, we're, we've kind of thought it through from all, you know, from all the angles. I hope so anyways. Well, this is huge. And I think it's badly needed. You mentioned this question you had back in 2011, 2012, when you came up with this idea, which is, why isn't there a YC for bootstrap companies? What's the answer to that question? What's, what's hard about this, and why hasn't anyone done this before? Yeah, it's, there's definitely some challenges to it. Um, one is that there aren't a lot of funding sources that understand this. Meaning, like I said, when you raise a venture fund, you go to these family offices and these wealthy individuals and endowments for universities or nonprofits, and you convince them to give you a small amount of money, uh, or it's often a large amount of money, and then you invest it in startups. And there's there's a whole way that you go about that. You know, 90% of them are going to fail. One of them is a Dropbox or an Uber, and it returns the fund, and that's how everyone thinks about it. And what we're proposing is not that. You know, as we've said, we're, we can, we've come up with a model that is successful for these smaller businesses, one to 20 or 30 million, and convincing investors who have traditionally thought the venture capital approach uh, forever uh you know that that this is viable is a is a task you know and that's that's what we've been doing we've been educating and then finding folks who are you know who are into that approach so that's one side of it on the other side of it on the the kind of founder side or the company side it's really only been the last i don't know four or five years that this community has for, has become what it is. You know, there's there's indie hackers, and there is um, there's microconf, and there is hacker news, and there are a lot now a lot of bootstrapping podcasts. 
a lot of these weren't around even four or five years ago. And so without some kind of ecosystem and some type of community, it's really hard to get a fund like this off the ground because you need both. It's a two-sided marketplace. If you think about it, you know, you need the investors put the money in, which is an education thing that we're working on. And then, you know, on the other side, you do need companies that are even open to or interested in, and you need to be able to, to kind of, you know, talk to them, which is how, uh, you know, how, what we're doing through microconf and, and our podcast and all that. Yeah. In a lot of ways, we're living in the golden age of the slow growth, self-funded startup. And Tiny Seed is really a bet that we're not at the peak yet. This is really a trend that's just getting started. It's going to continue and explode into the future. What are some of the indicators? What are some of what is some of the evidence that you're looking at to tell you that that's what's happening? And also, why is today a better time to build one of these companies than at any time in the past? Yeah, I think there is so much more opportunity and it's untapped because so many great founders, they think that VC funding is the only way to go. And so they go and they do the pitches and they do the accelerators. And, you know, I'm not anti-VC funding, like I never have been, but I'm just anti-everyone thinking that that's the only way to start a business. I mean, this that's in the first page of my book that I wrote in 2010. You know, it's like, there are so many other options. You can bootstrap and you can go VC funding. And, and then there's this in between, you know, that you can now, and even without, like I'll say, without Tiny Seed, I've done six angel investments in the past, I'd say three years that are all essentially this model. It's, it's B2B SaaS. So one is called Cart Hook, run by Jordan Gall, who's just spoken at Microconf and such. Folks may have, have heard of him. He has a bootstrap web podcast. Churnbuster is another one, Leadfuse. These are B2B SaaS apps that when we talked, they're, you know, at the time they were like, I don't think we're ever going to raise institutional money. We just want to get to millions in revenue so that everyone's successful. And that was the whole idea of it. That didn't exist. I, I'd never heard of anyone doing that before customer.io uh, did it back in maybe it was 2012, 2013 when they they raised their they call it fund strapping fund strapping, and they raised this round and they said we're going to raise a quarter million bucks. It's just to get escape velocity, and then we hope to just be profitable. And it's becoming more common. Like I said, you know, maybe 2014, 2015, I really started talking about it on the podcast, realizing there's this third option that I think is totally viable, and I kind of wished I had done it. You know, I mean, I wish that I hadn't taken it hadn't taken me you know, seven, eight, nine years to get to the point where I could start Drip. The only reason I could start Drip is because I had all these other apps throwing cash off. You know, I funded it myself. But boy, if I could have done that five years earlier, my life would be, my life would, you know, be a heck of a lot better. So that's why I think I totally agree with you that this golden age, there's so much opportunity and there's so many untapped places because everyone's been focusing on these billion dollar opportunities. Whereas how many people do you and I know who are who have these amazing, you know, five million dollar SaaS apps that throw off at fifty percent net margins, and they had no chance to raise funding from anyone ever, you know. But I, I, I so that's where I think like we are pouring gas on a fire that has started burning on its own, and I just want to, I just want to, you know, keep riding that. One of the cool things about Tiny Seed is that it's not just, you know, here you go, here's some money, good luck building your company, but it's an accelerator. Like you said, you're going to be writing one year of mentorship and guidance to these companies to help them succeed, which makes it super valuable. You've obviously got a ton of startup experience over the past 15 years. What advice would you give to people listening to the show right now who are sort of in the beginning stages of trying to decide whether or not to start a company and what kind of company they should start? Know that it's going to be harder than you think and start small. That's what I would encourage. And you don't have to stay small, like my book says, but I started really small. I started with a, a app that did 24 grand, you know, in, in 24 to 30 grand a year. That's not a very big app, but it, it taught me so much. And then I stair-stepped up to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. If I had tried to start Drip as my first app, I think we would have crashed and burned. I don't think I had the skill, the experience, the confidence, the there's certainly not the funds, you know, to be able to to do something like that. So that would be my advice is like, no, it's gonna be harder than you think. Start smaller. Like don't look at someone like Jason Cohen or you know, whoever your startup idol is, don't look at what they're doing now and try to do that because they they're at such a different place than you are, you know. I really believe in this this whole idea of starting small and building building your skill set as you go. That's great advice. And I think it's so deceptive too, because some of the people that a lot of us look up to is having built these amazing things, really what they did was started small. Even Drip itself, which was your biggest startup to date, started as a sort of tiny little widget. 
Thanks a ton, Rob, for coming on the show. It's been really helpful to hear your story, to hear about Tiny Seed and what you're working on today. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're doing, whether they might want to apply themselves, and uh, yeah, just where they can find more about you and what you're doing online? Absolutely. It's my pleasure to come on. I appreciate you inviting me. So tinyseed.com is where you know the info is, uh, all the info about Tiny Seed. And then if you're curious about what I'm up to, because I, I talk about this stuff every week on my podcast and I write about it and I do all the things, but it's just my name, robwalling.com is kind of my hub for all the activities that I'm, uh, that I'm doing. Yeah, how would you describe your podcast, by the way? I think people should really listen to it. And since this is an audience that listens to podcasts, I think uh, you know, it might be a good place to plug startups for the rest of us. How's it different than the Indie Actors podcast? Sure. Appreciate that. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's, so it's, it's not an interview show. I mean, that's probably the biggest difference is, is my co-host, Mike Tabor and I started it, two software entrepreneurs, and we just started talking about what we were up to and, and our thoughts and recommendations and learnings. And it's 420 episodes now, you know, it's been going for eight years. And so there's a, there's a lot there and it's typically just two people sharing their thoughts, insights, and even, you know, answering a lot of listener questions. And we do interviews every couple months maybe, but uh, it's much more a day-to-day me talking. You know, I talked all the way through the story of Drip, uh, you know, uh, what we were, what I was up to and the challenges and stuff. And then now I'm talking about, you know, how I'm launching Tiny Seed. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's one of my favorite podcasts and I recommend people listening in to Indie Hackers right now to go give that show a listen as well. Anyway, thanks again, Rob, for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast why don't you head over to itunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review if you're looking for an easy way to get there just go to ndhackers.com slash review and that should open up itunes on your computer i read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there and it really helps other people to discover the show so your support is very much appreciated in addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.